we're so thankful. Uh, all of you are making time tonight uh, to help, uh, to learn, and to equip yourself. This is Equip Tuesday, so we're, we're here as pastors to equip you uh, to be disciple makers in your home. And once again, the title is Gender, Helping Your Child Enjoy His or Her God-Given Identity. And as a church, uh, we, we stand for biblical truth uh, in an age of confusion. And, uh, you know, especially in a moment like this, I think there are many who would want to combine uh, the race issue with transgender, transgenderism. Uh, and we need biblical clarity, where God's word clearly teaches us that racism is evil. And we as a church, we as Christians are against it. We want to bring an end to it first in our own hearts and then work towards ending all forms of institutional and structural racism because racism destroys the image of God. It destroys human flourishing. And also in wisdom and love, you know, we want to expose the empty promises of transgenderism. You know, we as a church, we are against it uh, because transgenderism damages the image of God and it uh, hinders human flourishing. So um, with that, I wanted to just do two quick announcements. Uh, Friday evening, uh, we are having a time of prayer together as a church. So that's uh, 7.30 to 8.30. I want to encourage as many of you to join. There's so much to pray about, you know, within our church and then obviously within our nation. And then Saturday evening, we're having a Zoom Grace and Race meeting so we can just uh, listen and we can uh, bear one another's burdens. We can learn, we can help one another process. So that's Friday. So Friday night prayer and then Saturday night grace and race, uh, you know, that's uh, Saturday nights, 8 PM. And with that, uh, Rick, could you just open our time here in prayer? Would you be able to do that brother? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Father, we thank you for giving us this unique opportunity, Lord God, virtually to, to learn of an important subject, Lord God, uh, that oftentimes is confused within our society, Lord God, they twist it uh, and confuse it, even for the, the, the generations, Lord God, that we're pouring into. And God, I just pray right now that you give uh, Alex clarity and conviction to teach on this subject, Lord God, with, uh, with conviction, Lord, to, uh, Give us what we need, Lord God, to, to make a great investment in the lives of our children, Lord God, uh, for they are our future. And so, Father, we ask that you will give us clarity, give us wisdom, give us discernment, Lord God, even as he teaches on this subject, Lord, and help us our hearts to be open and engage with the subject matter, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask that you will please uh, enlighten us, Lord, uh, through your manservant as he has studied and prepared and research and pray through this subject matter. Help us, Lord God, to be better apologists when it comes to engaging our cultures, our culture on this particular topic. Uh, God, we know that this we're in uh, perilous times, uh, very confusing times for many people, and uh, we cannot afford to um, um, leave our uh, identity uh, up to the world, but God, you have given us your word. You've given us your truth, God, to give us the right understanding of how we ought to see our identity in Christ. And so, Father, have your way. Uh, breathe on this time. Open up our hearts and our minds, Lord God, that we may receive your word. And 
Thank you, God, for using this platform, Lord God, to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Great. I'm going to spend just a couple minutes here just to do a brief recap, and uh, you guys should be able to follow along. And now that we've given out, again, I hope it serves you. Um, here's, here's just a couple minutes just to review from last time. So our key verse was from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis chapter one. So my key point from last time was trusting God as our sovereign creator and Lord. This is what it all comes down to. And we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we, number one, embrace submission. We embrace submission. And in embracing submission, we acknowledge that God is the creator and I am not. We are not. There is a creator-creature distinction. God is the potter. We are the clay. And as the creator, as the potter, he has the right to determine who we are, whether we are male or female, tall or short, white or black. At the end of the sixth day of creation, God looked at all that he had made and said, it was very good. And what transgenderism does, it, it attacks God as the sovereign creator. So we embrace God, we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we embrace submission, number one. And number two, when we embrace differences, when we embrace those creational differences. And number one, there are creational differences between male and female. There's obviously the different anatomy, different body parts. That's part of God's good creation. So obviously a boy has a penis, a girl has a vagina. These are, these are unique body parts that God has given to us as male or female. God has created us with different roles. God, uh, God has appointed uh, boys to grow up uh, into manhood, uh, into responsibility, into the call to protect and to provide, to know God's word, to be able to teach it to their families and to others. And God has placed a call upon the lives of our girls to grow up into womanhood, uh, to embrace the call of nurturer and caregiver. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. And these differences, differences in anatomy and differences in role, reflect differences in God himself. There are roles in the Godhead that aren't interchangeable. So God the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. And so, for example, that, that means that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, did not die on the cross for our sins. The Holy Spirit did not send the Son. Right? The Spirit applies. And so each, each person in the Godhead has a unique role. They are not interchangeable. And so that means <clears throat> transgenderism is, attack, is an attack on who God is. Uh, it's an attack on who God is. An attack on the image of God is an attack on God himself. And then we also covered uh, cultural differences, basically learning to speak the language of gender within the culture God has placed us. And that's a, we're in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular context. And we need to understand the language people use. Uh, but then there's also conventional differences, which come down to gender stereotypes, where we might think, well, all boys like sports and cars. And, uh, but that may not be the case. There might be stereotypes that we just need to blow up and understand that God has made, 
that there's not a particular stereotype that lines up with, with uh, our creation as male and female. And so those were the first two big points that were covered last time. We embrace submission and we embrace our differences. And now we're going to get into the third point. Uh, we're going to embrace authority. That's what we're getting to tonight. And then after we finish this, uh, we'll, we'll be going into some apologetics. Uh, but before we get to point number three, how we embrace authority, uh, the authority that, has, that God has given to us in his word, I just want to remind you, just, just once again to us, uh, to, to remind all of us how important this issue is for us as Christians and that we do need to get up to speed. Uh, transgenderism is an important issue. Uh, I think there's a real temptation for us to bury our head in the sand for us to think, well, you know, how relevant is this? I mean, it's obvious. Boys are boys. Girls are girls. How confusing can this actually be? But sadly, in our culture, it is confusing. Uh, Al Mohler, in his podcast, The Briefing, uh, recently mentioned two transgender issues that are going on right now. And I, I would want to mention that The Briefing, uh, this podcast, is a great resource. It's a great resource to equip you to think biblically about current events. So it's about 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, you can listen to it when you're cooking or taking a shower or just going about your day. Uh, he goes through some major headlines and helps us to, and goes through scripture and helping us to think through these things. But anyways, on Ju the June 4th briefing, just a couple days ago, one of the headlines was having to do with high school girls that sued the state of Connecticut because that state was allowing transgender girls these are biological males to compete against them in athletic events. So in this headline, these, these girls are suing because there are biological males that are competing with them in athletic events. And these biological males, which identify as girls, so these are transgender girls, are taking trophies. They're taking recognition. They're taking scholarships away from these other girls. And so we see two competing claims for justice. You see transgender students who want to compete according to their own self-identification. So they might have been born male, but they want to compete as females, and they feel that is unjust if they're not allowed to compete according to their self-identification. But then on the other hand, you see girls, true biological girls, who believe that um, having these transgender students compete puts them at an unfair at, uh, you know, advantage. You know, they're put at a disadvantage. Uh, so... So transgenderism is a real issue, and it's coming to our communities. And so we, we shouldn't bury our head in the sand. Uh, we shouldn't be fearful either, as, as, covered la as I covered last time. You know, God has called us uh, to courage, to stand on the truth, and to do it with love, knowing that God is sovereign over all things. Okay, with that said, uh, you guys probably see in the chat window uh, the Q&A uh, once again, Teresa is going to help me collect uh, questions. You can text them to that number there, that 267 number. Um, hopefully, we'll have time for, for Q&A. Um, we might not get, get to them till about 930. If you need to leave before then, feel free. But if, but if you do have questions, please send them in, and we, we should hopefully have time to get to them. So, so picking things up from last time, uh, we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we Number three, embrace authority, the authority of God's word. And this is key for us to teach in our homes, that we need to teach our children to put their trust in God and his word. So a couple of scriptures here. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So one of the foundations for us as parents is to teach our children to submit themselves to the authority of God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from him. Second Peter chapter one, verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So once again, we see no scripture comes from man. It's not produced from man. It doesn't come from man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God is the primary author. He uses human agents. We have to remember before the fall, Adam and Eve, mankind, humanity, needed God's word in the Garden of Eden. Let's think about that. There was no way for Adam to know which tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which tree carried the forbidden fruit, unless God spoke by his word. And on this side of the fall, now that we're corrupted by sin, we need God's word even more, even more because of sin. And our sinful tendency is to ignore or to reject God's word. So within our home, we need to teach our children that God's word alone is what we need for life and salvation. It's sufficient. We don't have to look to philosophy. We don't have to look to religious studies. We don't have to look to other gurus or other sources. We don't have to look to culture or media. God's word alone is sufficient. And we need to teach that God's word must be trusted. God's word is necessary and it's trustworthy. It tells us critical information about God, about sin, about salvation, things of eternal importance. But if those things are true about God's word, the opposite are true about our own hearts and the culture around us. Our hearts and the culture around us by nature are corrupt and untrustworthy. Here's a couple scriptures just to remind us of this fact. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man. Its end is the way to death. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And even secular scientists recognize the foolishness of patients trying to diagnose themselves, especially in the area of transgenderism. <clears throat> Let me read this quote. The least certain diagnosis is that made by the patient, made as it is without any training or objectivity. This uncertainty is not lessened by the patient's frequently high degree of conviction. Neither does the support of others with gender dysphoria help since conviction leads people to associate with the like-minded and to discount or fail to seek out disharmonious views. So as Christians, we do the opposite. We don't listen to ourselves. We don't trust our own judgment. We don't trust the voices of our culture. We look to the word of God. We allow the word of God to transform our thinking and our behavior. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. And right, there, and right now, there's so many voices that are saying that transgenderism is good, it's acceptable, it's the right way forward for our society. So we can't listen to the voices of our culture. We have to listen to the word of God. And that means the word of God needs to be woven into the fabric of our family life. Our children need to see that we value the word of God, that we are under its authority, that we're allowing the word of God, the Bible, the Bible to renew our minds. And the word of God has clearly given us a responsibility to instill these values into our children. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 8. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So with all that, I want to go into some foundational concepts that we as parents need to teach foundational concepts coming from God's word. If we're not teaching these foundational concepts, you're going to be lacking the basic structure, the basic tools to speak into transgenderism. It's like making bricks without straw. And what, what I'm going to highlight here in this section is the critical foundational concepts of sin and salvation, sin and salvation. Okay. And th these will give you the basic building blocks to be able to engage with our culture on the topic of transgenderism. So, so let's move through these. Uh, so as parents, we are called to teach that uh, to our children that sin is disobedience to God's word. This is absolutely foundational. If God's word is true and it's authoritative, that means uh, disobedience to it is, is sin. It carries grave consequences. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And you can also look up Romans 7, verse 7. The commandments, the Ten Commandments, are found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and as well as countless other places throughout the Bible, including sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And so as parents, we need to teach our children these commandments. Do your children know what the Ten Commandments are? The commandments are the tool, tool given by God to lead our children to Christ. See, if our children don't know what the law is, then they don't know what sin is. And if they don't know what sin is, they don't see their need for Christ. They don't understand why Christ came, why he had to die, why he had to rise, why they need to trust him alone. And at the top of that list of those Ten Commandments is the command to worship and submit to God alone as God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So the first command God tells the Israelites he's rescued them out of Egypt. They are to have no other gods but Yahweh other than himself. They are to worship and adore and be devoted to God alone. And the second one fall, uh, falls on, you know, follows on the heels of that, which is uh, you know, don't worship idols. Don't wash, worship substitute gods. And transgender ideology is another form of idolatry. 
It's another form of idolatry. And in transgenderism, we see the rejection of God as the creator and the enthronement of the self as the creator. The self, I have the right to determine whether I'm male or female. God doesn't have that right. I have that right. Lest we become proud, we only need to pause for a moment to realize that uh, idolatry is in all of our hearts. You know, we're all born in a sinful, idolatrous state. That ought to keep us humble as we engage, you know, with people who hold on to transgenderism. So we need to teach that sin is disobedience to God's word. And then, of course, we need to teach that salvation is a free gift of grace. Romans 5.8. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can also see those other scripture references. I think it would be a great exercise if you and your family just looked up all those references and, and got to fill your mind and heart with the love of God in the redemption that God has offered to, to us through Jesus Christ. So that means we need to point our children to the love of God in Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for rebels like you and me. And that means because God loves us that much, we can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him about what he has to say about sin and salvation, but also about gender and sexuality. Let me read this quote, quote from Andrew Walker in, from God and the Transgender Debate. A crucified, creator, a crucified creator is a God who has the authority to tell us what to do, who has the wisdom to know what is best for us, and who has proved that he can be trusted to tell us what is best for us. Because he is God and creator, that means he has authority, he has wisdom, he is God, he made us. That means, in other words, he's the manufacturer, he's the maker, the creator of our bodies. He knows what the body is and how it's supposed to work. But not only that, because he is the crucified creator God, the crucified creator God, the one who was crucified for our salvation, he's proven his love for us. So we can trust him. We only need to look to the cross to see the love of God for us. We see his love and that should motivate us to trust him, trust his word. So we also need to teach, however, that salvation is found in just that, that it's trusting in Christ and his word. Salvation is a free gift. And salvation is found in trusting Christ and his word, living a life of obedience. They're not in conflict with each other. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And as, as we've talked about over and over throughout our sermon series in Matthew, Matthew 16, 24 and 25, and Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We need to teach, consistently teach that the Christian life is the life of self denial. Life is found in denying ourselves, taking up the cross and following Jesus. Following Jesus means a life of repentance, putting away our sinful desires and choosing to live a life of faith. And parents, if you are teaching these things, teaching the nature of sin, teaching how it's disobedience to God's word, God's law, God's commandments, and teaching the, the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ and the love of God for, for sinners who only deserve wrath. If you're teaching these things as foundational in your home, 
then you'll be well prepared to point to what the scriptures have to say about gender and sexuality. That means if your child struggles with gender dysphoria, you'll have a category to address it. Or if your child hears that, you know, one of their friends has a parent who transitioned and now they have, you know, their friend has two mommies. You know, you have a category to address it. If you're following, um, if you're following Jesus and submitting to his word, then you are preparing your family to submit to Christ in every aspect of life. You're teaching and modeling the fact that life is found in submitting to King Jesus. But not only that, we need to teach our children to stand firm with humility. To stand firm with humility. To teach them the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. And our faith is going to be put to the test in the weeks and years ahead. As transgender ideology gains more momentum in our culture, we've already seen it uh, take over much of Hollywood, much of the machinery that produces culture in our society has bought into transgenderism. And we're going to see politicians and our government and laws start moving towards the values and demands of transgenderism. We need to be prepared to stand firm with humility. There are transgender activists who are working hard to criminalize, this is no joke, to criminalize the following beliefs that you and I hold true according to the scriptures. The belief that marriage is only between a man and a woman. The belief that sexual activity should be restricted to marriage. The belief that children have a right to know and be brought up by their own father and mother. There was a recent case in Ohio where uh, parents uh, lost custody of their child because their child demanded, I think their teenager demanded uh, gender reassignment surgery. So this stuff is real. Uh, the belief that human beings are either male or female from birth. These beliefs, which have been held by the church for over 2,000 years and have been the foundation of civilization are increasingly unpopular. And you can be accused of being a bigot, of being transphobic, of being hateful simply for holding on to biblical truth. So that means we need to teach our children to stand firm, but do obviously do it with humility. We can teach them something like this. This is from Seagrave's book, uh, Gender, A Conversation Guide for Parents and Pastors, a book that uh, was recommended last time as a helpful tool. Sometimes people will not believe the same thing as you and me, and that will make them upset. It's normal to want people to like you, but we need to first care about what God thinks. Even if certain people do not like what you believe, you can know you are loved by God and me. So once again, uh, we need to teach these foundational principles within God's word, sin and salvation. You know, we need to be regularly uh, reading and studying and submitting to the Bible. And from that, it'll be natural to teach about marriage and gender and sexuality. You know, we won't be accused of picking and choosing what we like from the Bible. That means we shouldn't be content, obviously, uh, with just teaching on sin and salvation. Discipleship means we teach our children to obey all that Jesus commanded us. 
Paul never stopped at the basics of the faith. In Acts 20, verse 27, he said, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Everything in God's word. It's valuable. It's important. So I want to just uh, now, at this point, just dig a little further on that idea of the whole counsel of God and how the whole counsel of God does provide truth. God's word provides truth that's needed for us to understand and to engage and stand firm during this cultural moment. This is the New Testament version of our key verse earlier that we looked at from chapter one. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' teaching about marriage, Matthew chapter 15, verses four through six. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We see in this passage that King Jesus affirms what God has already said all throughout the scriptures, that God has created humanity in the image of God, each one of us as male or female. We see Jesus affirms that marriage is the creation of a new family, where a man leaves his father and mother, he leaves and then cleaves to his wife, holds fast to his wife. That means marriage is one male and one female. And that's it. It isn't two males together. It isn't two females together. There's no such thing as gay marriage in God's eyes. That also means it isn't one male and multiple females or polygamy or any other combination that people might think of these days. It is one male and one female. Jesus affirms that marriage is for life. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And we see that marriage is completed and strengthened by the glorious gift of sex. The two become one flesh, not just spiritually and emotionally, but physically through the glorious gift of sex. Let me read this quote here from Desiring God. Uh, Sexuality strengthens a monogamous bond and deepens the devotion of a couple as they welcome the gift of children. Sexuality is the means of procreation, But first, it establishes a covenant unity for one couple, creating a place best suited for raising children. This is the beautiful design and purpose of the creator. Nature calls for it. So sex is a wonderful gift. Marital intimacy is a wonderful gift, and it's God's idea. Obviously, sex is necessary for human existence. Think about if if everyone on this planet stopped having sex, the human race would die out in about a hundred years or so. But more importantly, if you are married, again, there's certain exceptions, of course. If you are married, you need a healthy sex life. And we shouldn't be ashamed uh, of talking about this. The church shouldn't be ashamed about talking about, about sex, how it is a good gift and how God calls husbands and wives to enjoy this beautiful gift. That means Practically speaking, you need to make time for sex, that husbands and wives need to satisfy the needs of their spouse. And I encourage all of you, all of you parents, uh, especially husbands, to read the book 
if you haven't done so recently, of Song of Solomon. We need to be reminded of the responsibility to romance our wives. This book of Song of Solomon, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's a book on, about marital and sexual love, the marital and sexual love between a husband and wife. And there's, of course, certain parts of it that aren't appropriate for children. But God has included it in his word because sex is a glorious gift. At this point, you might be wondering, why is the pastor talking about this? Has the pastor got off, gone off on some kind of little rabbit trail? Well, let me pull it back and explain why this is relevant. The foundation of a healthy home is a healthy marriage. If you want a healthy home, you've got to have a healthy marriage. And you can't have a healthy marriage if you don't have a healthy sex life. Kids can tell. Kids can tell if mom and dad don't love each other, if they're not honoring and cherishing each other, if not making time uh, to meet one another, to meet each other's needs. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Transgenderism is a denial. It's a rejection of the sexual union designed by God, a sexual union created and designed for male and female. I'm going to say this once again. God created us male or female, and then uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But transgenderism turns this on its head. Transgenderism says you have a right not only to live according to your sexual orientation regarding whom you desire to have sexual relations with, you also have the right to decide who you have sexual relations as. So that means if I, in transgenderism, someone can say, well, I might be born a male, but I want to have sex as a female. I want to have sex as a female. But we know that it's impossible for a transgender male who was, for instance, someone who was a transgender male, someone who was born female to have sexual union with another female. You can't have a sexual union with two of the same, female, female, or male and male. It's impossible. Transgenderism defaces the glorious gift of sex. To sum up this section, let me read this quote from Sharon James's book, Gender Ideology. Children and young people should be taught to respect the wonder of life, to respect their bodies, to respect the natural complementarity of the male and female body, and to respect their capacity to give birth to new life. So the Bible gives us the responsibility to teach our children God's word because it's authoritative, it's true, it's inerrant. And of course, that must mean we teach them about sin and salvation, but we can't stop there. We need to teach the whole counsel of God. We need to engage with them. We have a God-given responsibility as parents. So we need to know what are, what, what are they teaching in science class? What are they teaching in health class? Who or what are the voices speaking into the lives of our children? Who has influence over them? And with that, I want to now transition to uh, apologetics to talk now about apologetics. Uh, apologetics, in case you're not aware, is defending your faith, uh, being equipped to give a reason for the hope that we have. God calls us not to retreat, to just fall back into our holy huddle. We'll just hang around Christians who think like us, who believe like us, who act like us. 
God doesn't call us to retreat, but to speak the truth in love. That's what apologetics is all about, to engage with our culture, to stand firm with humility, to speak truth in love. That means we have to do three things here. Number one, contend for the faith. Number two, come alongside with compassion. And number three, comprehend yourself. So I'm going to go through these three points, and then I'm going to go into some specific areas of cultural engagement with transgenderism. But I want to go through just a basic understanding of the apologetic task of what God has called us to. And then we'll go into some specific topics, specific areas where we need to engage with our culture and with our wider world. So, so these are the three uh, building blocks, so to speak, for us to understand how we go about doing apologetics. Uh, so number one, uh, we need to contend for the faith. You know, this is laid out very clearly in Jude chapter one, verses three and four, and of course other places where God calls us to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. But let me read Jude. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Church, we are all called to contend for the faith, to engage with people around us. It's not just for the pastors, not for the professional theologians. It's not just for the Al Mohler types, all of us. It's part of us, our responsibility in going and making and going to make disciples of all nations. So we have to know, as we go into apologetics, we need to know what our culture values. This quote does a good job of capturing the critical idolatrous values of our society, the foundational values of our society. There are two unforgivable sins in a postmodern, post-Christianized, individualist world. The first is to, is to judge someone else. The second is to fail to fulfill your desires. Let me unpack this quote just a little bit so you, you get some idea. Postmodern, that just simply means we live in a world where truth is relative. You believe in Jesus? That's great. You believe the Bible? That's great. I can, and the idea is that you can believe what you want, I can believe what I want, and it makes no difference whatsoever. Everyone's on a path towards heaven. That's postmodernism. Post-Christian means that in the United States today and the West, uh, there's no longer a basic understanding of God, sin, and salvation. A basic understanding that maybe 50 years ago could be assumed that, yeah, people believed in God. People had a basic understanding of the Bible. They, they had a category for sin. They knew that they needed salvation, but we can't assume those things anymore. And we live in an individualist, a hyper-individualist society where it's all about this question. What makes me happy? What makes me happy? What fulfills me? What do I need? What are my desires? What do I want? It's all about me. And has very little to do what is good for society or what is good for civilization. We live in a hyper-individualist society. I think it's also helpful for us to, to realize that transgenderism is a new form of Gnosticism. Now, you might be wondering, what is Gnosticism? 
Gnosticism is a heresy that was confronted by the early church. And Gnosticism basically taught that the mind and soul, that was good. But the body, that's bad. The physical body, the physical realm, earth, that's bad. But the mind, the soul, the spirit realm, that's good. And so that meant in the first century, the second century, when the church was spreading the gospel, the very thought, the very truth that God would become a man, that Jesus Christ would become man, that was offensive to to many Greeks. That was offensive to many Greeks because Greeks felt that the physical world was a lower form of existence, that the, the physical world, the body was bad and dirty. And so what the church was tempted to do back then was to compromise. Well, the Greeks and our culture believes the physical world is bad. So, you know, let's incorporate some of that to make the gospel, to make God's word more attractive to the world. But then in so doing, they would have had to deny something so fundamental. The fact that Jesus actually did become a man. The fact that the son of God, Jesus Christ became a man proves that the body is good. Uh, Sharon uh, Sharon James, uh, this quote is helpful here. Uh, Gender ideology downplays the significance of our physical bodies and says that our subjective feelings are more important. It places a wedge between body and mind. This false distinction between body and mind is a new form of an old heresy called Gnosticism. It divides your thoughts from the physical reality of the body. Sorry, that's a typo, not form. It divides your thought from the physical reality of the body. Again, James, in her book, Gnosticism divides what God has united. He made us whole people. So that means body and soul, mind and body, need to be joined, kept together in one person. We shouldn't divide what God has joined. And transgenderism divides the mind from the body. If I think I mean, I'm a male, even though I was born female, I'm a male. If I think I'm a female, I should be a female, even if I was born biologically male. And as Christians, we have a message to proclaim. The message is that wholeness and life and joy is found not in dividing body and soul, but embracing the unity of body and soul. Embracing the unity of what God has created, God's good creation. And we need to model this through our healthy marriages, our healthy families. We need to contend for the faith. So we need to contend for the faith. Lots is at stake here. And number two, we need to come alongside with compassion. Come alongside with compassion. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Church, we need to contend for the faith without being contentious. We need to fight for the faith without picking fights. Neighbor love calls us to think carefully about what we say and how we say it. We simply look no further than Jesus Christ, Jesus who never looked down on different people, Jesus Christ who welcomed all people. He welcomed political elites and prostitutes. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, 
And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. We have to understand there's different categories of people we might be engaging with. There are transgender activists who are clearly pushing an, an agenda and want to conform society to their values and worldview to criminalize what the Bible teaches. But there's also people who are just suffering gender confusion. They're, they're hurt. They might be people who have suffered abuse. We have to distinguish between those who are pushing an ideology and people who are hurting, people who have been abused or suffering an identity crisis. And there's different approaches needed for different audiences. But in all cases, we need to be patient with them all. We remember that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And we don't win with, with cleverness. We win with kindness. And at a very basic level, that means listening and learning. Proverbs 18.13 reminds us, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 29.20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, obviously, these are principles that apply to all of life, especially in a moment like this, where there's so much heat and so many, so many voices speaking into our cultural moment. As we, as we wrestle with issues of racism, police brutality, rioting, it would serve all of us if we took time to listen, to give an answer, uh, to, to, to not give an answer before we hear, to not be hasty in our words, to understand that the situation may very well be much more complex than we realize. Tim Keller says, you cannot help with a burden unless you come very close to the burdened person. So in the same way, a Christian must listen and understand physically, emotionally, spiritual to take up some of the burden with the other person. And again, I, you know, this, this quote is just so relevant to us, you know, even as we wrestle with what's going on in our nation, you know, we're called to listen and understand, to take up the burdens of others. This means the church must be a wel must must be and should be the most welcoming place for transgendered people, for people uh, struggling with gender dysphoria. As you've heard us say multiple times, the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Jesus came for broken people, for weak people, for sick people. It's easy for us to forget this and look down on others who are different from us. When we came to Jesus. We were broken. We were weak. We were sick. So we have to remember that we're not different. We're not fundamentally different from transgender people or people struggling with gender dysphoria. So we need to come alongside with compassion. And finally, we need to comprehend. You need to comprehend yourself. Comprehend yourself. Some of us by nature like to contend. Some of us by nature like to have compassion. But we need both. Speaking truth in love is the evidence of Christian maturity, Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, so it's not one or the other, it's not just truth, not love, it's truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. God calls us to hold both together, truth and love. Again, Keller is so helpful. 
Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but it supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness, yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. I like to think of us as compassionate doctors. Compassionate doctor will speak the truth rather than hide it. If when a compassionate doctor sees a patient with a terminal illness, they're not going to try to cover up the truth. They're not going to pretend that everything is okay. They're going to tell the truth to the patient so that uh, a remedy can be pursued, so that uh, treatment can be pursued. But they're going to do it carefully. They're going to do it with love. They're going to do it with gentleness. They're not just going to, to, to crudely or harshly tell someone they have a terminal disease. They're going to, to, to tell the truth, but do it with compassion, speaking truth with love, truth with love. Okay, now that we've laid a basic foundation, have a, a basic understanding of apologetics, I wanna go into this next section, which gets into key areas of engagement. So some critical issues dealing with transgender beliefs, thoughts, and values, and patterns, and how we can bring biblical truth to bear in these situations. So I'm going to bring, uh, talk about three different examples, and I, th I believe these hit uh, the three, I think these cover most of, you know, what we think about when we think of the umbrella of transgenderism. I think this should cover most of it. It may not cover all of the values and convictions, uh, but uh, I want to cover these three and ways that God's word speaks truth in life into the false promises of transgenderism, where transgenderism leads to a dead end. So here's a th here are the three areas of engagement for us and our faith. Number one, the area of finding your identity. Number two, following your feelings. And number three, fallen creation. So these are the three areas of apologetic engagement, finding your identity, following your feelings, and fallen creation. So let's go through these. Number one, uh, finding your identity. This is a big deal for transgenderism. They feel that, that it is an issue of fundamental identity for them. They can feel, well, God made me this way. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa. And the transgender community finds its identity in a specific gender, whatever gender they feel like they belong to. The percentage of people who are transgender is relatively small, only 0.3%. That means three out of a thousand people. And yet they are vocal. Well, they're passionate. They're vocal and passionate because they're committed to their cause. Because of their commitment, their influence is far greater than their numbers would suggest. Transgenderism for these people gives these people purpose and meaning and value. It is, it is a religion for them. And we can understand, so now that, that can help us understand why 
they are so committed to transgender ideology. It's their religion. It's, it's, it's their world value. It's, it's their worldview. It's their values. It's who it's what they find their identity in. And so that means we need to come, come uh, at these people with, with, with compassion. These people, they don't know the true and living God. They don't have hope. They're, they're putting their hope in empty promises. They're being deceived by their own desires in the world around them. And so that means we tread carefully and we need to be careful as we engage with someone who, who is transgender. Brian Seagraves and Hunter Levine in Gender, a conversation guide. Uh, this, this quote is helpful. For example, someone who is gay can easily interpret the condemnation of homosexual activity as a rejection of themselves. This happens when our identity is based on anything, our desires, attractions, skin color, or actions, other than what God's word says. So that means at some level, we can all identify with transgendered individuals. All of us are tempted to find our identity in something else. Maybe it's our skin color. Maybe it's our actions, our occupation, our education, who we know, size of our bank account. Transgender ideology, however, is, is it's idolatry, as we looked at earlier. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we see in transgenderism an exchange. They swap the worship of the true creator God for self-worship, for self-worship, for idolatry. So what is the root issue when transgender people want to find their identity in their chosen gender? What is the deep, deep down root issue? Well, deep down, all of us want and need love and acceptance. All of us need to be able to say, I have meaning, I have value, I have purpose as a human being. As Christians, we don't look to ourselves or our desires or to anything else in creation. We look to God. Our hearts were made for love, the love of God, a love big enough that only God can provide. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with, by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We have an amazing God who has poured out his love for us in Christ, a God who rejoices over us, who exalts over us with loud singing. We have a message to proclaim, and we have a hope to offer, that we offer hope not in ourselves, our desires, not in the false promises of transgenderism, but, but by finding our identity in the God who has made us and the God who knows us best. We can point people that true hope, true joy, true life and meaning, both in this life and the life to come, is found in Christ. For, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, just 
pointing out a couple examples of who we are in Christ and what our identity can be if we would only submit to our creator God. Ephesians 1.3, blessed, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The theologian Augustine said it well when he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our second area of engagement, I'm going to spend a bit more time on, the, on these last two, certainly overlap between the three. The idea of following your feelings. Following your feelings. As we saw earlier, one of the sacred values of this culture is to follow your feelings. If it feels good, it must be good. If it feels good, it must. If it feels right, it must. And this value has devastated society. It's affected every aspect of life. If it feels right for me to commit adultery with this other person, if it feels right for me to divorce my wife, it is absolutely devastating our society. One of the key arguments in transgenderism is that if a female feels that they are a male, they should just follow their feelings. Just follow your feelings. But feelings are fickle. Feelings lead us astray, and we often can't trust our feelings. And when feelings become our authority instead of God, that results in problems. Many of you have heard of, some of you might have heard of uh, something called bodily integrity disorder. Bodily dis integrity disorder. And the, uh, in, in this medical disorder, someone feels like, my arm or leg doesn't belong. Their arm or leg, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like it should be part of their body. So people who suffer from bodily integrity disorder, they feel like they need an amputation. They need to cut off their arm or their leg because it feels like it doesn't belong. And they, they, they want that. They want a limb removed. But here's the, here's the, here's the question. Should we encourage them to remove the arm or leg based on this feeling? No. A loving response will help the person see that the limb is a natural part of who they are, and they should work to align their feelings with their biology. Here's another example. Someone with an eating disorder. There's an underweight girl who feels like she is too fat. She just feels like she's too fat. She's underweight, but she feels that she's too fat. Well, the solution for her wouldn't be liposuction or to get her to be even thinner. We need to help her to change her thinking. And I want to take now just a couple minutes. It's a four-minute YouTube video that exposes the inconsistency and foolishness of, foolishness of transgenderism. The video is called Gender Identity. Can a five-foot-nine white guy be a six-foot-five Chinese woman? Screen here. I'm going to share my screen. Hopefully, I can get this to work here. Okay. Oh, 
Okay, so I'm going to share my screen. Here's the video. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you, no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason you need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. 
Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? Okay, again, hopefully you found that video just helpful in exposing the logical inconsistency of transgenderism. And again, Sharon James has a helpful quote here. Do we have to affirm every identity or orientation? What about pedophilia or bestiality? Or what about those who claim to be a different age or race or species? We can see relying on our feelings is dangerous. As we saw from the video, when you rely on your feelings, when you deny God, deny the creator, you exit the realm of reality and then you enter the dangerous realm of insanity. I mean, it's obvious that guy is not a six foot five Chinese woman, but extending that logic to you can be who you feel you are, you can be what you want to be, uh, you can see how that is just insane and illogical. When someone argues that they are transgender and feel that they need irreversible gender reassignment surgery, we should help them understand that they don't have a problem with their body, but with their feelings. Feelings are often sinful and wrong. You can never determine if something should be the case just by noticing that it is the case. Just because people lie, that doesn't mean lying is okay. Just because people have gender dysphoria, that doesn't mean changing one's gender is good either. Just moving through these helpful quotes here. Uh, being true to ourselves doesn't make us people of integrity. Charles Manson, now deceased, was true to himself, and as a result, he is rightfully, rightly spending the rest of his life in prison. Ultimately, being true to our creator gives us the purest form of integrity. And as Christians, we present an alternative that rather, rather than being enslaved by our fickle feelings, we can embrace, we choose to embrace and call others to embrace the calling given to us by our good creator. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 20. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And I believe we can apply that truth, that truth of calling in the area of gender. Our identity is not to be understood in terms of feeling, but rather in terms of calling. God has called us to live either as men or women, and his calling meshes with the way that he has created us. Once again, that means beauty and joy, fulfillment in life is found in submitting to the creator's blueprint rather than denying it. And in the creator's blueprint, binary is beautiful. The creation account shows us that binary is not bad. It is beautiful. I love that. Binary is not bad. It is beautiful. When God separated light from darkness, land from sea, and earth from the sky, he was bringing, bringing order out of chaos. Note the binaries in this gracious covenant to Noah. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, 
cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Transgender ideology, however, ultimately leads to emptiness. There's emptiness in finding your identity in something other than God. There's emptiness in idolatry. There's emptiness in following your feelings, which quickly lead to sin and insanity. So those are two areas of cultural engagement where we can bring the truth of God's word, the truth of living according to the creator's plan into the realm of transgenderism. And finally, this, this third area of engagement is the area of fallen creation. Fallen creation. Transgenderism, in one sense, is simply just another way for people to express the fact that they know something is not right with this world. We can all identify with that, that there's something not right with this world. So when a man feels like he should be a woman, when there's a mismatch between feelings and biology, we can acknowledge, we can come to common ground and say, yes, there is something wrong with this world. You don't feel right. We understand that because this world isn't the way it should be. And we know that from the reality of the fall in Genesis chapter three. Walker writes this, between birth and death, no one enjoys a body that works as they wish it should and as it should. And this is so helpful for us as parents to know this truth because we need to remind our children of this fact because they're gonna face pressure they're going to face pressure that they need a certain body to feel secure about themselves. That only with a certain body or with a certain gender or certain type that they can feel good about themselves. But that's a lie from Satan. And the truth is what we saw last time, that, that we are all made, created in the image of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We each have infinite value and beauty. And our children need to know that. And we need to affirm that in our children. In teaching his kids, one author tells his daughter, you're not going to grow up to be a butterfly. You're not going to have the ice powers of Elsa, even if you wanted to use them for the good of others. And you might not even be a doctor. All of our tears, our disappointments and frustrations point us all to the simple fact that this is not the world that any of us want. Amen. So we can understand the struggle that people with trans, you know, with a gender dysphoria, dysphoria go through. We can understand the struggle faced by transgender people. They feel like the world is broken and we, we understand that. We understand how the world is broken. We understand that from Genesis chapter three, Genesis three, seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So after the fall, Instead of knowing that they were fearfully and wonderfully made, Adam and Eve were now filled with fear and shame. Fear and shame. And after the fall of humanity into sin, we see all different problems that people face with their bodies. And obviously, the, the, the main one, that our bodies grow old and die. No matter how healthy you are, you have to die. So we can all agree with transgendered individuals that the world isn't the way it should be but we can point them to the glorious gospel, the truth that 
there is, there, is, there is true joy and true peace, not looking within ourselves, not turning inward, not in rejecting our creator, which results in the loss of true joy and true peace, but looking to God, looking to the creator, living according to his blueprint, according to his plan. The results, and, and this is where it's helpful for us to know the actual data, the data. The results of gender reassignment surgery. These are results you're not going to hear in the mainstream media. The results of gender reassignment surgery affirms what we know to be true from the Bible. So let me read some of these quotes so, so you guys are equipped with the actual data. Compared to the general population, adults who have undergone sex reassignment surgery continue to have a higher risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes. Sex reassigned individuals were about five times more likely to attempt suicide and about 19 times more likely to die by suicide. Dr. Paul R. McHugh cites data that people who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not statistically report higher levels of happiness after the surgery. He also adds, I have witnessed a great deal of damage from sex reassignment. The children transform from their, the children transform from their male constitution into female roles, suffered prolonged distress and misery. So, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this, this data affirms what we know to be true, that simply changing your gender doesn't bring you lasting peace, either with yourself or with God. And we've all been there. We've all, we can understand how looking inward, looking to something else other than God, destroys lasting peace and joy and hope. Giving into sin might give us short-term happiness, but it results in long-term ruin. A uh, final quote here about uh, the actual data. A comprehensive survey of the scientific evidence was published in 2016 in the New Atlantis. It discussed over 200 peer-reviewed studies in the biological, psychological, and social sciences and concluded the hypothesis, again, it's a hypothesis, that gender identity is an innate fixed property of human beings that is independent of biological sex that a person might be a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body is not supported by scientific evidence. Is not supported by scientific evidence. And once again, you, you're not going to hear this in the mainstream media. The mainstream media has uh, sold themselves out to transgender ideology. They've bought it, hook, line, and sinker. They don't want to hear this kind of data. They look at data like this and, and, and write it off as hateful, bigoted, biased. They don't want to hear the data. And in the future, I believe people will one day realize that transgender ideology was a, was a tragic fraud. It was a medical fad, offering empty promises and defacing God's good creation, like spraying graffiti on a brand new building. And yet, despite the, sci the scientific evidence, despite the fact that people know that it won't bring about the happiness des it desires, it doesn't prevent people from trying to achieve it anyways, through hormones, through treatment, through surgery. In November 2018, New York Times ran this article titled, My Vagina Won't Make Me Happy. My Vagina Won't Make Me Happy. The author was born male and demanded surgical treatment to construct a vagina. 
This is what the author wrote. Next Thursday, I will get a vagina. The procedure will last around six hours and I will be in recovery for at least three months. Until the day I die, my body will regard the vagina as a wound. As a result, it will require regular painful attention to maintain. This is what I want, but there is no guarantee it will make me happier. In fact, I don't expect it to. And that's absolutely stunning. This man who wants to transition to a woman, he understands that this is a wound. He understands this isn't going to make him happy. And yet he is bought into the false promises, the lies. And when you read something like this, I mean, our hearts are grieved that someone would fall prey to this delusion and bring harm upon himself. And then also, uh, demand surgery that would consume precious medical resources. There are right now transgender activist groups arguing that surgery and hormones and treatment need to be, have to be covered by insurance. I want to share uh, Walt Heyer's story because I think it's, it's uh, illustrates uh, transgender, the, the empty promises of transgenderism so well. So Walt Heyer, uh, he grew, he grew up, staying with his grandma on weekends and his grandmother would dress him as a girl. And when he was dressed as a girl, he would be lavished with attention from his grandmother. One day his dad found out about it and uh, disciplined him and prevented him from going to his grandma's on his own. Later on, an older male relative of Walter, uh, Walter sexually abused him. And so in his imagination, he would go to a safe place. And in his safe place, he was a little girl loved by his grandma. And these thoughts became engraved and ingrained in him and never went away. And as Walter grew up, he achieved career success. He got married, he had children, but he never stopped wanting to be a woman. In his mind, being female was associated with being safe and happy. So at the age of 42, he underwent surgery and hormonal treatment, and then Walter transitioned to Laura. But then Walt talks about his emptiness. I was generally happy for a while, but being a female turned out to be only a cover-up, not healing. I knew I wasn't a real woman, no matter what my identification document said. What was the point of changing genders if not to resolve the conflict? After eight years of living as a woman, I had no lasting peace. Walt would eventually get connected with some Christians who would point him to the gospel, point him to God. And uh, he later uh, turned away from and changed his mind and uh, returned. This is what he says. Coming back to wholeness as a man after undergoing unnecessary gender surgery and living life legally and socially as a woman for years wasn't going to be easy. I had to admit to myself that going to a gender specialist when I first had issues had been a big mistake. I had to live with the reality that body parts were gone. But I had a, but I had a firm foundation on which to begin my journey to restoration. I was living a life free from drugs and alcohol, and I was ready to become the man I was intended to be. And you can check out the full story at the public discourse. Again, you read a story like that, uh, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. 
A story like that exposes the lie of transgenderism, that there is life and meaning and joy in following your feelings and finding your identity in a different gender. These issues come down to worship fundamentally, as we saw earlier, the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods for us. And, and again, as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's what Walt experienced. He was restless until he could finally find his rest in God. Now I want to tackle a, a question you might be thinking and the question is, what do I do if my child does struggle with his or her gender identity? What if, you know, my son wants to, you know, maybe feels like they're more comfortable identifying as a, as, as a girl or vice versa? And there's a real concern for us here because uh, we do live in a, in a very sexualized culture where we, our families, our children are bombarded by books and movies and media. So again, this is a reminder, we need to know what movies our children and youth are watching, what books and magazines they're reading, what social media they're consuming. Let me read this quote from Sarah R., a teenager who wanted to transition. Teen girls are taught to hate everything about themselves. None of us can win. Even the thinnest, most clear-skinned, prettiest of girls find an enemy in the mirror. In a world where my style, my interests, and my attractions weren't fit for a girl, transgenderism offered the perfect solution. Be a boy. So parents, we need to know what messages, what images are being fed to our children. What are they being taught in school? What are, what is, uh, what, what media, what is our, uh, the media, movies, books, what are they teaching about God, about ourselves? What is their version? What is our culture's version of sin and salvation? And it almost always comes down to a false understanding of sin and a false understanding of salvation. And in the world's eyes, sin is not following your feelings. And salvation is found in following your feelings. Now, of course, uh, I'm not saying that we as parents should only allow our children to read Christian literature. We do need to engage them. If you have younger children, of course, you need to make decisions on what they should read and watch. We have to do though. We have to do that, but we can't do that forever. We can't make all their decisions forever. We need to train them to think biblically. We need to th we need to train them to engage with values and worldviews that are different from our own, and to be able to explain to them uh, that these are false promises, false worldviews, that there's no life found in them. And our images, images all over the internet, on TV, in movies, they bombard us. They, they tempt us and our children that they have to look a certain way. They have to dress a certain way. They have to behave a certain way in order to be beautiful and worthy. So we need to, we as parents, we need to be prepared to engage with our children and to affirm their identity as uh, image bearers of God. They're created in the image of God. They're beautifully, they're fearfully and wonderfully made. So this is a real concern. We also have to be aware of the Im immaturity of children. Sharon James points out how we, we don't allow children to make big decisions. Children don't drive until they're 16. Children don't vote until they're 18. 
In this country, they're not allowed to drink until they're 21. So if children aren't allowed to make these decisions, why should they be allowed to make radical, irreversible decisions about their gender? We need to apply the same principles that uh, we acknowledge, you know, driving, voting, drinking, uh, to the area of gender dysphoria. We need to make an argument for that, that children are immature. They're not ready to make these life-altering decisions. So that means if you, you do have a child, a youth, a teen that uh, struggles with gender dysphoria, you need to hit the pause button. You need to hit the pause button and you need to allow creation to run its course. And you need to not be intimidated by potential threats of suicide. Sharon James writes this, uh, when children do genuinely experience discontent with their biological sex, this resolves itself in up to 90% of cases if puberty is allowed to take its course. If you allow testosterone to kick in for boys and estrogen for girls, in the vast majority of cases, gender confusion is resolved. And children may thank you later. Sarah R., person earlier we saw, um, her mom stood firm and refused hormone, tr hormone treatments and surgery. And this is what Sarah R. Uh, writes. Uh, our relationship is wonderful now, but mom's right about me hating her back then. I remember posting all the time online about how abusive she was for dead naming me, meaning using my female name, or not letting me bind my breasts. Her resolve was beyond admirable. At the time, like so many other decisions my mother made, it felt invalidating and upset me. But also like all of her decisions, I'm now grateful for it. And Sarah R. reflects on her past and her mother's decision. And she has, she has some profound insights. She writes this, having short hair doesn't give you an Adam's apple. Testosterone injections won't change your bone structure. A phalloplasty, surgery to construct a penis, won't let you produce sperm. The closer you get to the real thing, the bigger the gap between you and being a real male grows. Freeing yourself from the task of climbing a mountain whose peak can never be summited is your only chance of ever actually being happy. It's to escape from that mountain. Now, I don't know if Sarah is a Christian, but her profound insights line up with scripture so well. So as Christians, we, all, we have a solution. We have a solution for fallen creation, for the fact that things aren't right with this world. We can identify with people who, who feel like they don't have the body they, that, that they want. We can identify with that. We have bodily weaknesses, infirmities, ailments. But the solution isn't to look within, it's to look to Christ. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That means true peace and hope isn't found in ourselves, but in God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by this grace into which we stand. And the good news is that we don't have to change ourselves. God changes us. He gives us change and growth and hope. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 
And the amazing good news of the gospel is that God offers reconciliation for all of us. That in love, God has chosen to redeem a sinful people, a people who, have, uh, who want to overthrow him as creator. And in Christ, ruined creation is made into new creation. And this is the hope we hold out for not just ourselves, but people who have bought into transgender ideology, that they can be restored to their creator now and experience redemption. Let me read this quote from Walker. Uh, to be a new creation in Christ is to be able to anticipate the certainty of a coming day when the disorder of creation is put back together and when dysphoria of any kind is replaced by euphoria of every kind. It is to be equipped with the power of God's Holy Spirit to live in a relationship with God. A new creation in Christ recognizes that even in broken minds, living in broken bodies, living in a broken world, there is a definite and clear, very good blueprint of creation. And Walker again says, we live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on the trajectory to a Revelation 21 future. Genesis 3 world, it's a fallen creation, but we have a Genesis 1 blueprint and we're headed to a Revelation 21 future. We have to remember that the world really is broken, that there is a struggle, and yet Christ redeems it. Melinda Selmes writes this, Suffering in Christianity is ultimately one of the most powerful media for the transmission of meaning. Evil was transmuted into the living water, the blood of Christ, the wellspring of creation. The great paradox here is that the tree of death and suffering is the tree of life. This central paradox in Christianity allows us to love our own brokenness precisely because it is through that brokenness that we image the broken body of our God in the highest expression of divine love. This is one of those quotes that re requires further thought and reflection. And as Christians, we remember that we are made for heaven, Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That means we acknowledge that creation is groaning. Things are broken. And we are waiting for the final resurrection. And at the final resurrection, we'll receive the full redemption of our bodies. We experience part of that now, and there's more to come. There's, there's, there's a coming day when there will be no more brokenness. And at that time, all of creation in bondage to corruption will be glorified. But that happy ending, that glorious, happy, complete, perfect ending is only for those who follow Jesus. As we said earlier, true life and salvation in this life and the life to come is only found in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, from Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And in conclusion, Russell Moore says this, As Christians, all we can do is say what we believe, that all of us are sinners, and that none of us are freaks. We must conclude that all of us are called to repentance. And part of what repentance means is to receive the gender with which God created us, even when that's difficult. Okay. Thank you for hanging in there. That was a lot of content, a lot of teaching. Our questions. There's Q&A. I realize it's already 930, so feel free to sign off if you need to. This is being recorded, so uh, the Q&A will be recorded. So, so uh, Teresa, dear, are there, any, are there any questions? Or people like so tired after pastors droned on and kept teaching still longer for a whole hour and a half that people have all fallen asleep? <laughs> uh, there are two questions. Um, the first one is, um, I see a lot of pro-transgenderism arguments talked about um, the suicide rates of people struggling with gender dysphoria as a reason to support their movement. Meaning, if you don't support this, you're contributing to the death of transgender people. Do you have any recommendations on how to respond? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's certainly a point that's being made. Uh, we have to understand that there's a story behind these uh, uh, transgender people. You know, there's a story that led them to where they are today. I mean, we looked at one example, Walt Heyer. I mean, uh, this uh, man was um, abused by multiple relatives, by his grandmother and then by older male relative. You know, often, uh, quite often, these people are hurting. There's a story and so these people are struggling with uh, a deep and profound sense of identity, with grief, with shame, with loss, with depression. So, um, so then they, of course, struggle with suicide. I mean, if you've been through all that, you're going to be discouraged and depressed. Uh, and yet, you know, what is the solution? You know, transgender activists say, well, the solution obviously is for someone struggling in this way to follow your feelings and then uh, the problem and pain will go away. But as, as we've seen, the problems and pain don't go away. It's not healing. It doesn't bring ultimate wholeness. It doesn't bring the joy and happiness that they desire. And I think, you know, in order to engage with people, we need to, we need to be unashamed to point out the, the actual statistical data. People who, who actually go through these transitions, they're not statistically more happy afterwards. You know, they're, they're just as likely uh, to suffer depression and a risk of suicide uh, as, as before. So, so, so while we can, I, we, we can and we should identify with the pain that people are going through with compassion, recognizing that we all live in broken bodies. We all have struggles. This creation is broken. It isn't the way it should be. The solution isn't to further break creation. You know, the solution is to find out, well, what was creation supposed to be like? And then to live in conformity with that. So hopefully I answered that question. Um, again, if you have further questions or thoughts, um, don't, don't hesitate to email one of the pastors or 
uh, email info at risenhopechurch.org. But that's a, that's a great question. Okay, the next question is, is there any validity to the claim that we are made to be attracted to the same sex? In other words, um, that our genetic makeup determines us, determines us to be gay. Yeah, that's, a, that's an argument made by many people. I think uh, with uh, the entrance of sin into this world, uh, we know that there is corruption. You know, why are certain people predisposed to alcoholism? You know, that's a struggle that some people definitely have, that once they start drinking, they can't stop and they just have to, uh, you know, they, they can't indulge even in a, uh, a drink in moderation. You know, um, why is that? Um, you know, why, um, you know, why do certain people, you know, uh, feel like they're attracted to someone of the same uh, sex, same gender? And, you know, those things are a product of, of the fall. Um, you know, our desires are corrupted. You know, they are twisted. You know, there are people who, who struggle with same-sex attraction. You know, uh, we didn't have time to really dive into that because, you know, the, the emphasis of this uh, seminar, you know, this month and last month was really to talk about the gender issue, not about uh, same-sex attraction. But, you know, there's examples of people who suffer same-sex attraction, but they, they weren't abused as, as a child. You know, they didn't go through trauma, but they genuinely feel attractive that way. And I think, you know, we have to recognize that uh, because of the fall, you know, our desires are corrupt. Now, um, now, you can see how these things are very inconsistent, you know, the argument. So the argument was, well, God made me this way. God made me gay. So I need to just live out my calling. But that kind of doesn't work for transgenderism because you're made a male, but you feel like you need to be a female. So the, the whole born this way doesn't work as well. You're born in a biological body. So, so it's a, it's, it's a, again, as you take a step back, as you, as you think about these things, there's, uh, you know, there's going to be fundamental logical inconsistencies in a worldview that isn't aligned to truth. And we know truth is found in God's word, um, in God's word, and it's, it's uh, found, uh, in, which uh, explains creation and lines up with, uh, and creation affirms God's word. So, um, and so I would, you know, for those who say they were born with those attractions, well, uh, we only have to look at um, uh, what, what the design and intent of marriage is. You know, you see marriage, uh, the covenantal union and bond through sex. Well, people with uh, same-sex attractions, male and male, they can't actually have sex, female and female. They can't actually have sex. They can't actually procreate. You know, it's, they may say that they were bored with these desires, but it runs contrary, not just to God's word, but to creation itself. So the questions we have. Okay, just two questions. Okay, all right. Well, um, thank you for making it all the way through uh, over an hour and a half. Uh, I hope this blesses you. I hope this serves you. Uh, you know, it was um, helpful for me to read and study, and it's a joy for me to just bring God's word and for us to think carefully about these things. Um, you know, we need to continue thinking about these, these things. Just remember the different resources I recommended for you. There's a children's book by uh, Marty Machowski, which is great for you to read with your kids. Um, 
you know, uh, you're, if you guys aren't aware, Marty Machowski's curriculum is what we use in Promise Kingdom, you know, the gospel story Bible, old story news. So Marty Machowski wrote, you know, God made boys and girls. I highly recommend that resource. And then the conversation guide. So, so, you know, the goal of this isn't just, okay, you know, we've talked about it. That's good. The goal for this is to, uh, for us now to, to think critically about how God wants us to disciple our children for us, how to make disciples of our children, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. And that's going to look different for your children, depending on their gender, their age, your stage of life. So hopefully this gives you uh, a, a starting point to, to think about, uh, you know, parenting, you know, in this particular area. So, so thank you for joining. Uh, again, it's recorded and we'll send out a link. Uh, Pastor Rick, do you want to just close our time, our, our time with, with prayer? Thanking God for his word, his truth, and then asking for the Lord's help, of course. Father, thank you so much, Lord God, for using our beloved brother, Pastor Alex, Lord, to distill the truth from your word to confront our culture that's confused about gender identity. Father, we are um, blessed that we have the truth and that uh, you said you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Thank you that we can experience true freedom in Christ for he is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, I pray that all that has been shared today, Lord, God will not fall on deaf ears, but will fall on fertile hearts and will spring up and bear fruit to your glory. God, the most important gifts that you've entrusted to us are our children. And they will be shot out as arrows into this world. And we as warriors, Lord God, must be able to aim them into this world the right way. So help us to train them up in the fear and the ammunition of the Lord. Help us to help them, Lord God, to stay on the straight and narrow in light of this confused culture we're living in. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be sensitive to those who are um, maybe struggling with these issues. Maybe we have friends or relatives or neighbors who are struggling with gender identity or transgenderism. We pray, Lord God, that you'll help us to love them with the love of Christ. Uh, Lord, help us to gently, Lord God, uh, share the truth with them. But ultimately, Lord God, give us a heart to share and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. For that is the only solution, Lord, for our madness, for our craziness, for our twistedness, for our sinfulness. And so, Lord, we ask that you will please uh, um, bless each and every family on here tonight, Lord God. We pray that you will um, download the truth of these words in our heart and help us, Lord God, to um, be good stewards of what has been shared tonight. Thank you for Alex, Lord. We pray that you replenish him, renew him, and strengthen him. Thank you for using him as a gift to Risen Hope Church, and even uh, the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone say amen. Amen.